Thank you. Mike. Thank you. Thank you. it's me. It's Mikey from the corner. I came as soon as I got your towel. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 50. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from Seattle, Washington, uh, is our friend, Joker Rob Franco. Hey, hey. What's going on? What's up, Rob? We're very happy to have you on the show. Uh, Happy to be here. And if my introduction sounds a little mechanical or like I don't give a shit, uh, (laughs) it's because this is the second time we're doing this. And uh, yeah, I lost the file, made a big doo-doo. I'm so sorry. I stunk up the bathroom with my bad podcasting producing. But um, we only lost half the episode. So after we finish this Mikey and Nikki review, the audio quality will probably change a little bit and you will be uh, taken on a little trip in the extended clip time machine to the previous night. So... Our double feature today is uh, Mikey and Nikki, the Elaine May masterpiece from 1976, and Jack and Jill, the Dennis Dugan classic from 2011, uh, returning champion, three-time returning champion, that is, Dennis Dugan. Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you picked out these movies for us? Well, they're both movies about relationships. They're both uh, movies with uh, two of the characters' names in the title. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I felt like I could hit all my uh, my personal talking points with them. I get Al Pacino in there. I get Peter Falk and Cassavetes. I get Elaine May. I get Sandler. I get it all. It's It, it was the easiest way for me to f- do this podcast and not look like a total jackass. <laughs> um, and if you know Rob at all, you know his affection for the Sandman. In fact, he actually got quite a bit of uh, a little bit of blowback for a very supportive uh, i would even go as far as to say feminist post uh supporting the king adam sandler buying absolutely uh you know gross women's things yeah I, I don't <laughs> you said that but, i didn't say that I, that's 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 the thing i didn't get it's like why are like why are so people so open about talking about this stuff it's kind of nasty <laughs> yeah. keep it in the bedroom as far as i'm concerned <laughs> did, yeah did you see someone someone quoted the post that for for those of you who aren't aware i posted uh pictures of adam sandler buying tampons and he's wearing a mask and gloves and someone quoted it, he that saying like well actually this is a year old and uh, he had to wear a mask and gloves because he was so grossed out. I'm butchering the, the phrase. It was, a, it was a pretty good line. It was a it was a very good line. <laughs> it speaks uh, it speaks truth to power regarding uh, Rob's own power on Twitter. You know when you post such high quality things, you know uh, you, you really rack up the followers, and then that ends up with you just being attacked for the most minuscule things, which is why every time Rob, uh, among a few other my friends, retweets me, I immediately mute the tweet so I don't have to deal with all of the uh, trolls that come out from under the bridge to yell at me. <laughs> See, that's yeah. where I live. That's where I yeah. live. I want to I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get with the riffraff. I want to get with the trolls. Get down no, to No, I will say, I, I'm not anti-troll. I like being trolled, but if you're going to come for me, bring the heat. I mean, <laughs> people sometimes, the the quality of which people think they're they're getting at me is just insane. <laughs> 
I like being trolled, says the man who's getting epically trolled. <laughs> yeah, but, but like, I actually like it. No one, no one who can take me. Like, the only time... <laughs> now, I will say, fucking Brian, a.k.a. the ape, he, like, he fucking wrecks me, like, five times a week. And they're always good. And I always... Whenever he gets me, I'm just like, God damn, you fucking... He got me. Shout out to the ape, and friend always, of the show. I always respect the ape's ta- uh, takedowns of me, but come on. We gotta have more, like, uh, the blank nicknames for our friends of the show. I mean, Brian already gave himself the ape, but we gotta, we gotta ape, come up with, bane. like, our whack pack, you know? We gotta yeah. find out who gives the best head and call them the brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, Mikey and Nikki, uh, which one's the brain? <laughs> uh... Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's what's so interesting about this film is it never lets you know. Yeah. Well, well, I think the problem is they're they're both tops, and and they yeah. just can't it, they can't make it work. These guys are pretty masked. I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, clearly we wasted all of our serious discussion yesterday. But uh, <laughs> well, we're we're getting we're warming up. Yeah. 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 So. Mikey and Nikki is Elaine May's third film. Uh, don't expect to like him. The poster read, and I guess the audiences didn't really understand because this film absolutely bombed. Um, I'm surprised, actually, with how much like reclamation that May's filmography in this film in particular has gotten. That there's been no like absolute morons on Twitter being like, "Uh, you guys seriously stand a film with this toxic masculinity of a uh, you know on display <laughs> and like all the, yeah. the typical Scorsese endorsement versus depiction bullshit." Well, hey, Elaine May, Elaine May, right? That's a that's a guy's favorite female filmmaker. That's a cheat code. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you're right. You know what? Now that I think of it, I have never seen anyone try to say it's like a misogynist. Although I did recommend a friend from high school for her to watch it, and she made a slight post, or not post. Uh, she messaged. I think it post these days. Um, but she messaged me, <laughs> and she was like, "I, I just have trouble with the sexism." I was like, "Well." I mean, okay, but is, is it that the movie you gotta is understand, sexist? A broad directed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is something for the fellas and the broads. <laughs> she might have been just being lazy. <laughs> um, maybe. Um but I did there I one time also saw someone have a take that the only reason why the movie is good is because it's clear John Cassavetti stepped in in their direction, and that is just a hilarious thing to say. That's based on nothing. Yeah, uh, it's also extreme. It's like extremely sexist. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. How about Rob? Why don't you tell us what what is Mikey and Nikki in your terms? It's a movie about two uh, friends that are they're they're somewhere in between friends. Brothers and lovers. There's there's something there. It's it's a very special kind of friendship, and uh, uh, Nikki, who is John Cassavetes, uh, they're they're both small time gangsters, and somehow Nikki stole some money from their boss, and there's now a contract out on him, and uh, he calls out to his only real friend Mikey, 
to help get him out of town. And we we soon find out that not only is uh, Mikey not really trying to help get him out of town, he's trying to keep him in one place so he can get whacked. So that's kind of where the movie starts. And it's a movie that puts you in the middle of the story at full steam you know like you you start with nikki calling mikey the, the from the first image you know you see cassavetes with his squished squiggly cigarette and his yeah, gun broken uh, one in each hand mm-hmm. and you just know that like this man's story started so long ago it would have to be a 20-hour movie you know Absolutely. uh you just happen to get the last two hours of it and one of the opening lines is even uh, one of the first lines of dialogue you hear spoken is the Cassavetes on the phone to Peter Falk, and he says, Mikey, I'm in trouble. And that, that's how the movie opens. One thing that really took me aback this time was, like, how much, like, shit Cassavetes looks in the beginning. Like, he's a handsome man, <laughs> and just, like, with, like, the, the scraggly facial hair there. I mean, he, like, shaves pretty quickly on, but, <laughs> Did like... Did you watch the, the Pat Oswald interview on no. Criterion? No. Okay. Because he says God, that no. exact same thing in, like, <laughs> the exact same phrasing. Prefacing it with Damn. saying he's handsome. And he Busted. looks bad. No, I mean, he is a handsome <laughs> okay, man okay. that looks like uh, shit. I believe you. Two, two people could have the same thought. All I'm going to say is JT's girlfriend, watch her back. Like, if he's being yeah. like Patton Oswalt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't support people like that. <laughs> look, just go to r slash conspiracy and look up Patton Oswalt. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, about is, there, is there a conspiracy that he killed his wife? I, I wouldn't say that, but yeah. I would, okay, yeah, 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 I take it. Back. I would I say he yes. did kill his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does look very disheveled, and like when they go to that first bar, and like even though he's supposedly cleaned up, and he's switched coats with uh, with Mikey, and you know, uh, they're just looking at each other. They, they've already ran out of conversation, and Mikey's just scheming in his head, and Nikki's looking around the bar, and it's just these shot reverse shot exchanges uh, that either have just like filler dialogue or really just nothing. Uh, and it's just reduced down to the glances, which is so great because so much of this movie is really terrific dialogue that is so dense and filled with like dumb exchanges that create comedy in places where you don't expect them. And yeah, Elaine May is obviously a genius of dialogue. Absolutely. The conversation flow in this movie is great, too, because it's like, you know, you do get some of that awkward small talk in the beginning, but like, as the conversation flows, you know, they make time for the faces. And I was just thinking just like how fucking like unbearable the small talk would be if we didn't get like that mugging. Like that mugging really is like some nice frosting to make it go down the gullet. (laughs) <laughs> really quick uh, i just want to go back to the the comment about uh cassavetes and how he just looks like shit in the beginning he has a really like powerful line at the beginning when mikey just first gets there and i i hadn't really thought about it before but it, it really struck me on this viewing he says something about how he hasn't shaved and he he he, he hasn't moved he he just wants to be forgotten. He he feels like if I don't shave, Jeez. if I don't take care of myself, maybe they'll forget me. 
But then my problem is when I want to get up, I won't be able to move. That's a good line. Yeah, Jesus, that's bleak. (laughs) Yeah, I won't. Yeah, uh, fucking brutal. This movie, generally, uh, the meat of it is Mikey and Nikki uh, going around town bouncing from one place to another you know they they want to go see the girl then no i want to go see a movie no actually let's go to the cemetery Uh, okay we're out of the cemetery let's go here uh one crazy night type movie where obviously uh the the friendship is tested since falk is there on a job uh and when the friendship is betrayed the other way because uh nikki is obviously just a massive piece of shit and constantly uh treats his friends like garbage uh the betrayal makes the murder i guess seem i don't know if justified is even the right word but peter falk uh decides to meet up with the henchman that's been trailing them the whole night and carry out the job it seems inevitable in a way right because it's like Um, you know, as toxic as uh, Mikey and Nikki's relationship is, it seems like it would never end unless, you know, one of them gets got. And, you know, we, we witnessed the end of this friendship. Yeah, and it's pretty clear from the start of the movie, this is the, the end of it. Yeah, and to just fast forward through the plot so we can just talk about things that we liked about it. Uh, so he meets up with this henchman, then they go back to the, the mob bosses that sent them, uh, one of them being Sanford Meisner. And uh, yeah, eventually, Nikki is killed trying to get into Mikey's house, uh, where Mikey is there with his wife as the sun is coming up and the day is over. You wait! Please, you wait! Wait, Mikey, you son of a... One thing I really love about this movie is stylistically Elaine May's going places where she didn't in her first two, uh, just based out of the setting. You know, this whole thing almost takes place at night outside. So, so much of it is dark and using streetlights and uh, lens flare and stuff like that to be really creative in the darkness here. Uh, And there's so much camera movement just tracking the characters as they walk so that when she rarely does uh, move the camera around the characters while they're still, it feels so much more impactful. Mm -hmm. And like the outside scenes have a great texture to them. You know, you have the scuzzy neon glow of the streets, but also like the interiors feel so specific and lived in, you know, especially, you know, like the bars, you know, that they walk into, you know, you could kind of just smell the dinginess on them Mm -hmm. you know the set design of this movie is very good oh yeah and not that in your face it's subtle like a true master when when i think of this movie and uh it's kind of a dumb way to think about it uh because both performances are excellent um i often ask myself like whose whose performance is the better one and depending on my mood when i'm watching the movie I'll say one over the other, and mostly I've thought before that Peter Fox' performance is the better one. His his uh his role is the harder one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this particular time, I was watching Cassavetes, and you know I think uh when people play crazy, typically it's it's overpraised. Like it's mm-hmm. not that hard to play crazy or like mentally ill. Because you can kind of yeah. be big. You, like, yeah, it's easy to play mentally ill when you already are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but in, in this particular case, there are certain things Cassavetes does that are so fluid 
and so true to the the really mental illness of this character. Like he'll just start like dancing to like after Mikey is uh walking away from him and he's like after the fight and he's like, Hey Mike and he just starts snapping da 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 Um or <laughs> or they'll like they get rushed out of a a bar and then they just start like giggling and laughing like you think it's a serious moment and he's just giggling i mean these are not uh crazy like this is like really thought out and like he gets this guy he knows this childish character and it's true yeah I mean, especially in those two integral scenes that lead up to uh, them breaking apart for the third act of the film, you know, it's it's really telling for these characters that all of this bullshit they've been through, what breaks them is first their visit to the girl where Peter Falk's uh, masculinity is, you know, put to shame. And we also see both of their sexual pathologies deeply exposed. Dude, he gets exposed. no pussy, dude. Peter Falk gets yeah. no pussy. <laughs> Uh, and then after that, the the watch that his father got him being broken, and it's like that combination of his masculinity and his sentimentality both being pushed to their like furthest limits of being tested that he finally just has no choice but to completely give up on this man who's been in his life as long as they can remember, essentially. Uh, and it's it's so sad. It's very sad. And then you you totally get the full uh, vision of Cassavetti's uh, lunacy in that moment when he breaks the watch. This is a guy who will break your fucking father's watch and then immediately after go, hey, you don't have the time, do you? (laughs) <laughs> and it's like and he goes i've had i've had the watch 20 years and he goes oh yeah that's long enough like it's just what a fucking psycho and then at, at that point all you can tell him is i don't i don't want to do it anymore what be a friend like what a fucked up sad thing to say yeah uh, yeah what oh i what God. i like what i like about like the acting in this movie and i think this is true of most like uh, dual character movies, but I think their their performances really depend on each other, right? Like kind of like um, oh, yeah. like you know, Cassavetti's like spark wide energy will like you know trigger something in Falk, and then you know Falk's kind of like subdued or just you know upset demeanor will you know trigger something in Cassavetti's character, and it's you know ongoing loop. Oh damn, you cut out there. I said they're they're both constantly elevating each other. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that, in relation to, like, the two breaking points of the girl and the watch, I mean, it's, like, because they're operating on such levels, I think there are moments where you're, like, convinced where it's, like, Mikey could, like, go through with this and not kill Nikki. Like, there are little, like, sort of moments of hope there for them to, like, sort of continue their friendship or get out of it. But just, it's so entrenched in like a dark toxic um i don't know the whole of their friendship like is sort of fated to be that doomed yeah for sure i mean you you get you could tell there's a moment when they're playing hot hands on the bus and peter falk is like i'm coming with you i'm gonna drive you we'll go we'll get out and it's like he kind of believes it 
or early on in the beginning when he's worried about his ulcer and he's worried about he, he and he tells him to 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 put on his coat because he doesn't want him to catch a cold. It's like, dude, you're gonna give him a cold to the back of the head. <laughs> kid, like, dude, him trying to get Cassavetes to take the tablet for his yeah. ulcer is amazing. The physical acting there of him yeah. like a dog denying the tablet, like Kramer in that one scene in Seinfeld where they have to get him to take the fucking dog medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cassavetes has a Kramer moment later in the film. Yeah. He does have a crazy. <laughs> Hello. You gave her a dime, right? So I owe you a dime, because this is my old lady. Okay. What do you mean she's old lady? She's not old. Bye. That old black man. Man, I'm trying to give you a break. <laughs> um... We also should say, yeah, the Hot Hands game, as featured later on in On Deadly Ground uh, by Steven Seagal, covered in the podcast. But, Rob, earlier you said uh, you had a very unique choice of words that I think you might have not even realized calling this set of characters sad and fucked up. Uh, Obviously, this film was a huge influence on the Safdie brothers and Uncut Gems. And I, I think that it takes a really special filmmaker and actor uh, like for the premises of these movies to work, you know, like yeah, these absolutely. awful people just ruining their lives, making terrible decisions. Each time I've watched this, John Cassavetes makes me like physically react to his poor decision making, you know, and that's like, yeah. you know, obviously Sandler and Uncut Gems. Uh, and also like a few weeks ago on the pod or last week, rather, when we talked about Monsieur Verdu, uh, it's something like that where it takes a certain level of skill as both filmmaker and actor to pull off something as dark and sad and fucked up as this. Yeah, and mm. but and you also have to have actors that you can't help but feel things for. Like I have, mm-hmm. I have an mm-hmm. affection for John Cassavetes that just can't be turned off, even though I know I have to separate his character from who he is in real life it, i just i look at him and i'm like god i, I love this man and it's same for yeah. like you you take you take like the godfather of indie film and you take fucking columbo and it's like these two powerhouses who their their characters are not good people but you can't shut off your your feeling in the same way why sandler works in gems because this is the goofy funny guy who's also now a degenerate gambler who is putting everyone's life in jeopardy just so he can have the buzz of gambling yeah and it's like a testament to how may is able to accomplish this is like putting that sex scene you know toward the second act break or not even the sex scene but their visit to the woman you know if you put that earlier in the film people are just walking out of the theater at that point or turning off the movie you know like nobody wants to see that yeah well yeah at that point you get the characters then just spending the hour and 10 leading up to that with them it's like you have no choice but to watch these men ruin not only their lives but that of others too and falk has no choice but to kind of watch in the background you know yeah and uh reduced to a cuck reduced to a cuck which Mm -hmm. is i think what my favorite part of that scene how falk is like kind of looking but not looking at the same time amazing it really adds to the like the the grim tone of that scene well one thing i wanted to ask a totally organic question uh is Mm -hmm. rob uh have you ever had any situations (laughs) 
uh, in <laughs> your uh, oh, wow. life that are like a Mikey and Nikki style uh, friendship ending fight? You know, JT. Extended clip learning from our mistakes. You know, JT, it is funny that you say that. <laughs> Because I do, I do have a friend who, I mean, we're still great friends now, but we, we've had some blowouts that they, they didn't, uh, end up becoming like real fights, but like, I literally broke my hand punching a a cement wall because I was so mad at him and I didn't want to punch him because he was just berating me and calling me names and just projecting his own insecurities onto me. So I was just like, you're not fucking listening to me. And I, I punched, <laughs> I punched the cement wall like really hard. And I had a few beers, uh, in me. And, uh, as an experienced wall puncher, oh, yeah, I, I was know, gonna say, have you broke, have you broken drywall before? Well, no. So I, I've done it all. I, I punched the, <laughs> the, the, I punched bricks. I, I one time punched a hole in a frat party, uh, but that was a that was that was a goof. But uh, as an experienced wall puncher, <laughs> just out here he, destroying fraternity property. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, but uh, as an experienced wall puncher, you know that when when you're gonna punch a fucking cement wall, the second you make contact, you're gonna want to pull back. You don't want to commit uh, to punching it because it's it's cement. <laughs> but I had. Uh, had a few beers in me so that uh that knowing when to pull back and not <laughs> try to punch through a cement wall was not in my brain so i fucking put all my force into it and when i did pull back uh, all my anger was gone cuz it was just transferred into the pain in my hand <laughs> and my hand was instantly a balloon it was instantly fucking the size of both of my hands combined. And I just looked at my friend who I have a, a fight with and I go, I think I just broke my hand. And he's still mad. <laughs> and he's still mad because he didn't have a broken hand. So he's, he's still all fired up and he goes, good, you fucking idiot. You fucking deserve it. So it was, it was a it was eventful night. Thank you for asking, JT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one time i uh i i uh, out of you know kind of i was be I, this was a happy wall punch oh <laughs> i and it was it wasn't a wall punch it was a door punch i was kind of i was a little loose myself um one night and i was arriving home to my apartment which i knew was unlocked because my roommate was there and i wanted to punch the door open like punch you like use the door handle and uh punch the door handle it busted open but it actually <laughs> it split one of my knuckles and, uh, oh, and, I, and I didn't, and I didn't have a band aid, so I just got uh, some toilet paper and a shoelace and tied it around that. And uh, that's sick. Dude, that's I still fucking... see, I still see the scar on my finger yeah. right now. Hell yeah! Battle wounds, war oh, stories. Man, that's how you do it. Um, so we didn't like write the films or anything. Uh, this is an easy five bullets for me. Um, yeah, it's it's not quite my favorite Elaine May, but that's only because the Heartbreak Kid is, you know, also one of the twenty or so best movies ever. So, uh, yeah, it's fucking Mikey and Nikki. If you're listening to this, you've already you you know it, you, you know. So, yeah, I give it four and a half bullets. If you know, I gotta go a new leaf for my favorite Elaine May, just because uh, 
I am a rich playboy misogynist. But um, uh, but this one's great. And, you know, to be honest, uh, when I first watched it, it was probably my least favorite May, uh, which I like all of them. So, But, like, this one really grew in my estimations. And, uh, and I think it's just kind of like the int- intimacy of the characters. And I feel like it really uh, it hits harder on a rewatch, in my opinion. But, JT, what about your rating? Um, I'm going to give this one five bullets. Uh, this was my third time around with, uh, Mikey and Nikki. The first time I watched this, I was like on set, like doing like production design for like a friend short film. And so like when they started rolling, I didn't have much to do between takes. Um, so I just popped on a flick and wow, what a t- making cinema and watching cinema, what a synthesis. Um, but on the previous record, I talked about uh, Mikey and Nikki as like a Philly film. And I really go back and forth on it a lot because I love claiming it uh, for the beautiful city that I love. But like because it's so dark and like, ble- I mean, it's like the film is like a black hole, especially when you're outside. And so you can't, there's like no real Philly like distinguishing moments but the essence is there in just the dingy dirtiness um i think philly can sometimes be a depressive black hole so that works and then also the uh bus driver uh that nikki beats up is uh uh wearing uh, a septa hat so you know it's from that beautiful philly public transportation um so yeah it's a it's a classic what about you, Rob? Oh yeah, it's a it is five bullets for me. Easy, my favorite Elaine May. Uh, if I could like scan my brain and print out the movie that I want to make, it would look a lot like this one. Um, the The fight scene is maybe my favorite scene of all time. It's it's just uh, to me it's it's the greatest. It doesn't get much better than this. And if you know me, you know that I'm. I'm a bit of a, I present as a Mikey, but on the inside, I'm a Nikki. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll be back to talk about Jack and Jill. Yeah, babe, the real, the real masterpiece of the pod. <laughs> you know, there's really something wrong with you. Don't you have any notion of anything that goes on outside your own head? Don't you have any idea how people feel? Can't you understand that my father gave me this watch? It's the only thing I have for my father. So what do you want? You want another one? Forget it. Welcome back to Extended Clip. Before we get into Jack and Jill, um, Malcolm, what did you watch this week? Um, you know, I, you know, I've once said before that uh, growing up is realizing that Mario Bava is better than Argento. And uh, I think that, that might be the case for Fulte, too. And uh, I'm saying this because I just saw the New York Ripper, his 1982 movie and this is kind of late in his career he's a seasoned veteran at this point and it shows i mean this this movie's oozing with style it's uh you know it's it's kind of inventive like they'll just be doing shit like shooting like scenes in the reflection of a doorknob you know he's uh he's pulling out all the stops here you know if you're if you're a slasher fan like this is pretty brutal this has a lot of uh you know nasty shots nasty intense shots but i love it for that um i love it how it shows how like the cops and the psychologists trying to solve the case don't really give a shit. Like, they're just, you know, they're just doing it for the clout. And also, I've been watching Entourage like a madman. That's, uh... uh 
I had a manic night uh, where I just I just couldn't stop watching Entourage. I watched Entourage all night, and I was going crazy. So <laughs> that's been fun. Nice. What about you, JT? Um, last week I watched uh, a musical. Uh, the gang's all here, and that planted an idea in my mind. What if musicals are really good? And I was like, I, 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 I'm starting my journey into dipping my toes into musicals. And I did uh, my sister Eileen because I wanted to continue my Lemon Party. I'm trying to watch all the films <laughs> of Jack Lemon, uh, and because Jack Lemon's a great actor. My sister Eileen, it's a musical that he's in very, very briefly. Um, it's pretty good. Um, Bob Fosse uh, did the choreography, so that was another like main attraction getting me in. Uh, Janet Lee uh, plays the titular sister Eileen, and it's just like a story from her sister's perspective, her, whose name is Ruth, her just sort of being jealous of her sister Eileen. Uh, being the attractive one in the family um, and sort of a story of her trying to get like some of her short stories published and also bone Jack Lemon. Uh, the plot is really inconsequential. There are a few really good musical numbers. Uh, one where two dudes are like strutting on each other, like doing some hat tricks and then <laughs> uh, like sort of stripping. Like they both take off their ties and jackets and it's like, yeah, I would love to homoerotically dance to compete for a woman. Uh, it, it was a good time. What about you, Eddie? Have you uh, caught anything good this week? Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm thinking I watched some movies this week. I Sorry, I, I we've discussed the phenomenon known as letterboxed face on this podcast before, but I have letterboxed face right now. I'm looking at my diary, unsure of what to discuss, but... Um, you know, let's go with How Green Was My Valley, the John Ford masterpiece. Um, I, I always take it slow with Ford. I can't really watch his films like back to back or anything because they just like knock me out so hard. And uh, this one I was having a little trouble like getting attached to or whatever. But of course, by the end, the, by the time the end rolls around, John Ford always has me uh, just bawling my little eyes out. What what did it? What did it? Oh, I mean, it's the music always. Oh yeah. Uh, for this, just like any number of people singing uh, together in this film, just shook me to my core every single time. Yeah. And uh, also, of course, the lift ride back up toward the end, uh, or the the mine shaft ride back up toward the end to reveal the empty the empty lift, uh, signifying that there were still people in the mine that were too injured to get out. Uh, just heartbreaking. And uh, the cinematography, deep focus cinematography is so incredible. And uh, just Ford showing these great masses of people. I talked about Our Daily Bread last week and the way that King Vidor can shoot these great masses of people uh, within the land that they live off of. And I think Ford, you know, hits the same phenomenon here and is maybe not as, you know, uh, Soviet influenced as Vidor was in his montage. But this is definitely one of the this and the end of Wagon Master, I think, are the craziest montage I've seen from John Ford. So, yeah, check it out. And there's a Frasier episode where he really wants to see it. So check that out, too. I think it's uh, season three, episode maybe 13, High Crane Drifter. Check it out. Rob, have you watched anything interesting this week? Uh, you know, this month I have not been watching the new movies because I've been focusing on the books. 
but I watched Michael Clayton, which was tight. And I, I've been watching, I've been watching the uh, Star Wars Clone Wars uh, series. Oh, nice! How is that? I've been interested. It's all, in I mean, it's I haven't. Uh, apparently, it gets like really good. So far, I I'm not there yet. I I don't think <laughs> it, it's it's fine. Uh, yeah. And then speaking of King Vidor, uh, I. Uh, caught on mother's day the end of stella dallas like the last 20 minutes and i mm-hmm. just fucking watched and i just cried my eyes out that that is that <laughs> is a, a movie man uh in certain when you guys cry during movies are you consistent i find i'm not what do you mean like like the the, uh, the very rarely does a movie make me cry every time i see it or like sometimes oh, yeah. I'll just watch a movie and based on like where I am in my life at that time and place, I'll just fucking weep. Yeah. You know? uh, no, yeah. I definitely feel that. Like I've cried at Simpsons episodes based on <laughs> where I am in my life. Oh yeah, I yeah, mean for sure. when they're when they yeah. hit it hard on the family drama on Simpsons, it hits. Like come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the end of Streetcar Named Marge is like heartbreak. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, um, and so, like, Stella Dallas, the first time I watched that movie, I did not cry, and then just turning it on, getting the last 20 minutes on Mother's Day, I, it was over. I, I had not had a good cry like that in a while. It was nice. Uh, the mom the mom stuff definitely influences. I, I saw Ozu's The Only Son, which is a... Uh, a, a That's a good one. A mother-son classic uh, yeah. on my mother's birthday back in uh, a few years back, and yeah, it definitely hit. Uh, Ozu um, is a big mom guy. He, oh yeah, he's a big time mommy's boy. He like lived with his mom for like ever. I mean, same. I'm fucking twenty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not an end in sight. I Look, hey, if it means I I can become the the white Ozu, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Woke up feeling like the white Ozu. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on to Jack and Jill. This is a film by Dennis Dugan from 2011, and it's a film where Adam Sandler plays a dual role, uh, not unlike uh, certain films like Glenn or Glenda or The Nutty Professor. Uh, it's kind of a combination of both of those two with the with the Jerry Lewis influence and the drag influence as well. You know, David Spade uh, also makes a uh, drag appearance. I feel like this was like right at the end where you could do drag and like it's fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's done really well in this. I mean, Adam Sandler is really fucking funny as Jill. Like, yeah, we have to. I yeah. mean, yeah. if you're funny enough, you can get away with anything. Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to pussyfoot around this. This is a film that people hate, and yeah. I think we're all in agreement that it's really fucking good. Yeah, oh, it's, it's very funny. It's so funny. People think they're smarter than this movie. Yeah, you know? they're yeah. not. They're when not. They're not. The, I mean, the Thanksgiving scene alone. I, like, I'm sorry to read too much into a dumb movie, but like it, and to go like all Armand White on it. But please. <laughs> Dude, the, we welcome that. The bourgeoisie white guilt in the adopted uh, Indian son and the having the homeless man over for Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, saying, oh, you can go home now. Uh. What, what, what choices 
God, what interesting choices that, like, yeah. uh, the, the, the Indian son in particular is, like, such a specific choice, and it feels <laughs> like it was done on a whim. It was like, hey, let's have make him have, a, like, a fucking adopted Indian son. <laughs> but it also has that heart to it that, like, all the Sandler movies have, no matter Absolutely. how mean and disgusting they are. It's still, like... You know, even if the actor, the twinkle in his eye isn't convincing, uh, the film makes it so, you know, uh, for sure. uh, and he, he's, you know, a quirky kid who tapes things to him uh, and eventually uh, also is the first person to inflict physical violence on a woman in this movie, which is a uh, <laughs> recurring theme to say the least. <laughs> that kid was killing it, honestly. I don't, I don't usually fuck with child actors, but he was he had some lines. What a way to put that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very violent film, no matter who yeah. is on the end of it. But uh, it's, true. it's often Adam Sandler in drag. But it's so funny. Like, it understands <laughs> physical humor so well. Just like well, most Adam I mean, Sandler movies he, do. He really is, like, our generation's Jerry Lewis. Like, in terms oh, there's no like, doubt about it. Yeah, like, his characters are so reminiscent of, of Jerry. It, it's just, yeah, for sure. I feel like this narratively uh and in terms of realism is basically as close to classic hollywood as we get in like <laughs> modern comedies like really because people expect a certain level of realism and not to blame elaine may but like new, <laughs> ho new hollywood uh new hollywood changed people's perception of realism to where now people watch old hollywood movies and they're like oh it's like corny and dumb whatever mm -hmm. uh and they talk all stupid but uh, the level of suspension of disbelief for classic Hollywood cinema is so much, uh, like greater than that of everything that came after it, despite all of the absurdity and metatextual stuff that we see now. And I think that that's, a a big part of this film. You know, you have mm -hmm. to buy into yeah, Jill definitely. being a real person and not Adam Sandler in makeup, you know? Uh, and you have to buy into Norm Macdonald climbing <laughs> onto the light fixture in the bathroom. <laughs> You're not the crazy hot masseuse, are you? I want you to tell me right up front, because if you are, I'm not paying for dinner. Come here. I mean, yeah, this is why I really like the movie. I feel like it's, like, relentlessly goofy at all costs, you know, no matter yeah. what the stake of the scene. It's just, it wants to make you laugh. That's a nice thing to do. That's what it's all about. As absurd and uh, anti-realism uh, as it may be, there are also some very specific uh, realistic things about this and the Jill character and like Sandler's reaction to her and just, you know, Jewish male anxiety and films like Punch Drunk Love that he's already played up. Uh, this film definitely uh, brings that to the forefront, such as at the Thanksgiving scene and other times where Jill is constantly embarrassing Jack and saying things like about his son, did you make him switch from being Indian? Uh, which is a great line. Uh, <laughs> so we open on a Pepto-Bismo ad with a friend of the friend of the pod, Regis Philbin, who we know through our friend Lights Camera Jackson. Of course. <laughs> yeah, why, why, uh, why are we getting him on here? He will he's, not acknowledge he, our existence. Yeah. Dude, he's, 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 he's cold-blooded. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I gotta respect his ignoring game. Oh, yeah, he's uh, good. He is good. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, if he acknowledges it, it all falls. Wait, which a little sidetrack. It always shocks me when when he does block someone. Cuz yeah. like, wow, what it's did It's mainly it? girls, too. 
Is it? From what I've seen. From what I've seen. It's mainly oh, been girls. that's interesting. So there might be a little bit of sexual pathology Damn. to work oh, through. Oh, fuck. Damn, Damn, that's hot. LCJ sexist. Let's cancel. <laughs> or LCJ <laughs> is just dudes rock. That's true. <laughs> uh, so we open on this Pepto-Bismol ad and we meet Adam Sandler as a commercial director. Which is a great, like, stand-in job for him as, like, an artistic sellout, you know, uh, but with a heart of gold, and you love him. And mm -hmm. uh, he his goal is set very early to get Al Pacino to appear in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial, and his secondary goal, or alongside that, is to get his uh, sister out of the house. And as great screenwriting... Uh, scenario artists would do these goals of course oppose each other in the end and he must stick around his sister to get to al pacino this is a classic farce in that regard a classic uh, <laughs> dressing up in costume a classic we've talked about this the genre of com where comedies for like 30 years were just about like pretending to be someone else for ha anywhere from half an hour to an hour and a half uh, so he does that for the third act here and it's uh it's a wonderful film full of gags and uh intense Al Pacino performance and what else could you ask for, right? Mhm. Mm there's there's such a precision to su some of yeah. these gags. Like I like I think about the movie watching scene and like that's something that's like I don't know. I feel like people could easily be like, "Oh, that's stupid," which is like, you know, you can't do that to this movie. But it's like the, how long that lasts, it just gets funnier and funnier to me like as it goes along. And it's just so I mean, it, it is there's a strangeness to seeing, you know, Adam Sandler you know, you know, two Adam Sandlers in the frame, even mm -hmm. though, you know, it's Jack and Jill, but, uh, uh, some great, some, some of his best gag, this is maybe like his best gag movie, like just chock full of gags. Oh yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And Sandler can pull off so many different types of gags that I feel like people will flounder on. Like there is mm -hmm. a lot of celebrity like reference stuff in that where they're just like funny little cameos. And I feel like that, like, especially with something like, I don't know, late era Simpsons that can air on the side of like being really annoying and shitty, but like every, the Philbin, I mean, building a whole thing, uh, the whole subplot around Al Pacino, um, Johnny yeah, Depp good. at the basketball game as well. They all, they all I mean, hit. You can't forget Subway Jared. Oh, of and course. I was, awesome. I was gonna bring that up. <laughs> Fuck. Uh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love I love that scene because it's like Vince Offerman like like bit a hooker's lip off or something like that or don't you can retake that uh, Vince Offerman bit uh, a sex worker's lip off and <laughs> there it is <laughs> and uh, I mean yeah Subway Jared was a relentless pedophile and uh, it just, it's just showing that these these ad ad adamant are they're kind of nasty they're they're up to no good well yeah I mean this is a post textual reading. But you have to look back and see that this is a film that acknowledges uh, the breadth of pedophilia within the film production. It, it, it's really the uh, the the second coming of Mad Men, if you think about it. <laughs> it's it's the spiritual sequel. You get you get Don Draper, and, and then you get Jack. <laughs> Uh, this film is so overfilling with celebrities. I mean, Shaq is in it for like five seconds. Like mm -hmm. Sandler just is approving footage of him in a commercial for ham where he is hamming it up and licking a ham and it's a rapper. And it's like, I bet there's five minutes of Shaq footage from this film <laughs> that I couldn't squeeze into the 90 minutes, but 
that just shows the quality of the film. And speaking of basketball, uh, that is where Adam Sandler meets Pacino and uh, Jill has her meet cute with Pacino. And uh, it's a it's a great like old school kind of scene where like there's mm-hmm. fake NBA players on the Kings uh, and you just see them from the shoulder down uh, with Jack and Jill uh, deeper into the background with the focus on them. And it's like a cartoon where you don't see the adults, you know, <laughs> uh, but then you also see some game footage like projected behind them. It's kind of weird to look at, but uh, you know, for the Laker fans out there, a very nostalgic era. You know, you got Kobe, Pau Gasol, Andrew Bynum, Shannon Brown on screen. What, what a great time. Another theory I have about Sandler is like the interesting like amount of people he'll get in his films and like the cast list will just be like fucking strange because he always puts his boys in too. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's great that we have Alan Covert and Al Pacino sharing the screen. <laughs> Big Covert. Alan Covert fan. is like fifth build in this. All of the greats. Nick Swardson, of course. Nick Swardson's quite good in this. I got yeah, of yeah. all of his Sandler movie performances. This is one of the better ones. He's subdued in this one. He's not. Uh, he's not. He's not just like playing like a mentally disabled person. Yeah. <laughs> Do, does anyone else feel about this film like the the pacing is so fucking weird? Yeah, absolutely. Like the the opening, like it starts and it's like like. I it's a funny thing to say about Jack and Jill, but I feel like it should be longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. It's weird because uh, we talked about Dennis Dugan as like a very relaxed and chilled out director, kind of. And I think this film kind of contributes to that. You know, you get that long telephone scene where Adam Sandler's on the cruise ship and Al Pacino's on stage, and there's really no like intensity to that scene, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's oh, like that, perfect that's comedy the best, when he just starts yeah. doing the Godfather on stage. Yeah, but still, somehow, this film plows through its runtime like nothing in 90 minutes, and it's like, oh, I that happened already okay like it's so oddly structured and paced yeah late sandler movies like especially since he started doing movies on netflix it seems like he's he's doing like he he's less and less effort really like, yeah but it's like, i think there's still like good films out of oh it, absolutely you know? yeah. absolutely yeah. but it's like it's like they they're taking as, as few shooting days yeah as possible. i'd agree <laughs> Which is funny because the Netflix ones, the the Netflix Sandler movies are like long as shit. That's true. Yeah, they're I all do, I, like two hours, which is crazy. I prefer kind of like yeah, his like his period right before he started making Netflix movies, kind of like his you know from like Grown Ups to Blended. I feel like th- these are kind of like the perfect like chill Sandler, the kind of like the hangout, relaxed quality. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this and uh, Grown Ups 2 are like my favorite Sandler movies of the post-2000s, really? probably. I uh, of, of, of like the 2010s or the 2000s as a whole? Uh, I mean, probably because like my favorite of his original run were in the 90s. You know, like once you hit mm-hmm. the 2000s, like Big Daddy and stuff, I like a little less than Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. Uh, and I'm just saying his comedy, like of the Happy Madison. Dude, you, know, you don't fuck. you don't fuck with Zohan, the Zionist classic. Zohan's yeah, so fucking funny. Zohan, Zohan is like of Zohan feels like it'll be a test for me to revisit. Dude, Zohan is so good. It's so fucking funny. Every joke in there is incredible. I need to check it out. It it's really good because I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. Yeah, and. 
And if you've, like, met some, like, hardcore Israeli dudes, it's just, it, it plays so well. Oh, trust me, I have. <laughs> uh, uh, uh-oh. Who are you guys talking to? What are you guys up ba- to? What? <laughs> Nothing. <I> was- <laughs> uh, back to Jack and Jill. Um How's everybody's gobble gobble bay? Hey. Hey. Yeah, Excellent. By the way, Jill, this is Otto. Otto. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. He's homeless, right? He seems clean, but you should put one of those toilet seat protectors underneath him to make sure he doesn't ruin the chair. Things fall apart after Adam Sandler then uh, takes matters into his own hands and impersonates his sister. Uh, you know, really creating a hall of mirrors as we see Jack dressed up as Jill and then we cut to Jill uh, worried about the situation. But after things fall apart there, we get just a beautiful dissolve from a disheveled uh, Jack to the face of Jill. Uh, just pure movie magic as this film mm-hmm. uh barrels down to its third act and what i love about this film is how essential it is though because like as much as i say it could be longer uh, i love that the beat of everything being fallen apart before their reunion is maybe two and a half minutes at yeah. most. Uh, and then it's the New Year's party and everything's yeah, back to normal. That's good. And uh, she ends up with the the gardener and his family, which is uh, amazing. I mean, he's hilarious. Yeah. And when they go to you know the barbecue, it's hilarious. But uh, yeah, I think there's also, not to go all Armand White on it, but I think there's more class commentary than one would generally think there is in that decision of her dating a uh, a gardener over Al Pacino, because, you know... I, I do like that. I do like that scene a lot. And, like, I, I mean, it, it maybe it has a little bit of, you know, racist imagery in it or whatnot, but I do I do think, like you said, it is it is comes out woke, at least in my eyes. Just it's like, uh, you, li- you like to see, you know, different cultures get along. You know, you love yeah. to see it. Do a little bit of understanding. Yeah, and yeah, how absolutely. how many like fucking cookout scenes are in there in woke Hollywood bullshit? Like this just feels yeah. so much more like I don't know. It's sloppy in terms of like dabbling a little bit in racism there, but like it feels more earnest and like real than like phony woke posturing. Yeah, yeah. for sure. No, I. I between this and Spanglish, it's like clearly Sandler is aware that, uh, you know, he lives in an essentially uh, Latino city of Los Angeles. And like, it's something that is just part of his life. And it's like to ignore that is fucking stupid. I mean, I hate to pull this card, but like how many uh, fucking Latino characters were there in Booksmart, right? No, like, yeah. It's supposed to take place in Los Angeles. What the fuck is that? Yeah, fuck those women. I mean, even the casting of uh, Eugenio Derbez, I don't know if I said his yeah. name right, but like he's like, he's, this was kind of his first American movie, or at least one of them, and like he was, he was huge in Mexico, and so like it's, it's Sandler having that cultural awareness, you know, he's, uh, he's putting people on, he's helping people out. Um, before we get into our ratings on this, I, I, before we wrap it up, I want to play uh, a little voicemail that we got from our friend of the show, uh, J.R. Molina, on the opening of this film. Hey, y'all. This is J.R. from TikTok and Twitter fame. Um, I just wanted to give you all a quick story because I think you all would get a kick out of it. But I grew up in a small town in Texas, uh, largely Hispanic. And the one thing that binded us all together 
was Adam Sandler. And I'm not even joking. I remember when uh, Jack and Joe came out, me, my cousin, and my brother were all hyped to see it. And it was already been out for like two weeks and the new Twilight had just came out. So we drove all the way up to the nearest theater, which was like 20 minutes away. And it was sold out. And kind of shocked us because we thought like Adam Sandler wasn't cool anymore because, you know, he gets kind of, he kind of gets hated on by the critics. So we're like, okay, well, who cares? Let's drive to the next nearest theater, which was 40 minutes away, the opposite direction. And it was sold out there too. So, so we drove all the way back to the initial theater and bought the latest Showtime because that was the only one that wasn't sold out. And it actually got sold out by the time we got there. So uh, I just wanted to give the Rio Grande Valley a shout out because we were all Sandler stands down there. <laughs> nice. Well, thank yeah, thank you, Jr. Man, that made me emotional. That was beautiful. I know. Don't don't we all uh, miss going to the theater and seeing an Adam Sandler movie arm in yes. arm? Yes, yeah. dude. I yeah. it took me like a, a a long time to come to terms with my fucking Adam Sandler love because. Yeah. Because, like, I I grew up watching that shit, and I would watch every fucking Sandler movie. And then, like, in high oh, yeah, school, same. like, my junior year, I heard someone, like, say something negative about Sandler. And then my pretentious ass was like, okay, yeah, he sucks. He's trash. And, like, and then and then I fucking started to, to I, I grew up. Like I I I became like I don't know like became a man. I became a man. My balls dropped. I was like I was like I will like literally whatever I like, and you know a lot of that fucking Sandler shit is golden, and it made me who I am, and it made me like fucking be cool, like feel cool about being Jewish. Like it's all all this shit, and it's the greatest. Mm -hmm. It is the fucking greatest. In terms of, like, representation or whatever, which is dumb, uh, like, uh, Sandler, I think, gets at a certain uh, Jewishness uh, that most outwardly Jewish filmmakers don't. Yeah, like, he's probably the the most noteworthy, like, cinematic Jew since Woody Allen. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, I... I just as a white man, Adam Sandler inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Also, I just wanted to say um, I've liked Adam Sandler my whole life. It's the only thing that I've liked for my whole entire life. I've said this before, and it's uh, it's kind of the one thing I've never broken. So, just putting Damn. that on record. Damn, Look, I was there opening album. weekend for Grown Ups too. I I know what's up. Um, real one. I didn't like it back then, though. Uh, I can't. I had to come around on Grown Ups too. But he anyway. still put that money in his pocket, so that's respect. <laughs> Hell, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah! I'm all about supporting kings. Uh, <laughs> but Jack and Jill then ends with the Dunkachino commercial. Wow! Dunkachino! It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino? Don't mind if I do. Uh, which is great. It's like the narrative ends. Uh, you get Jill with her new family and you get a big camera pull back and it fades to black. And then you get the commercial. Uh, it's not a post credit sequence. Yeah, I'm, I'm just now realizing I have not talked about Al Pacino. Yeah, you know, uh, before we because like we're pretty much at the end plot wise, but that doesn't matter. Rob, tell us about Al Pacino in this movie. I Well, 
Okay. Al Pacino <laughs> is for some reason in love with Jill. He 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 sees her and he sees he sees himself. He sees the playing stickball in the Bronx. <laughs> he even has the great quote. He goes he goes to Adam Sandler. He's on the phone after Adam so he's on the phone with Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler pretends to be his sister to talk to Al Pacino and tell him he's not she's not interested. And uh Al Pacino goes, "Popcorn, we did it." We did it. <laughs> and he goes, he, go, he goes, what do you mean? I thought she said she wasn't interested. He goes, I can smell horny across an ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, what a line. <laughs> what I like a, that is, what? I like this is, a, I like that is a scent of a woman Oscar got broke. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that, that him smelling horny from an ocean away. That's like of the, the cascade of, uh, oh, intertextuality oh, of Al Pacino's performance here. Uh, of course, calling back to his Call heightened back. smell uh, for that sweet scent. In uh, the very first episode of this podcast, we talked about that classic uh, bad film with a great Al Pacino performance. I remember it. I remember JT having the great line. JT had a great line talking about Al Pacino's racism and scent of a woman. And he goes, Puerto Ricans have the best smelling cars. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great line. Uh, thank you. I appreciate shout, it. Shout out to JT. <laughs> You're a real fan. Oh, man. Shout out to Ron for remembering <laughs> the classics <Yeah>. there. <laughs> Truly in the spirit of the show. So... As Al Pacino says, burn this. Don't let anyone see it. You know, uh, we end the film and you realize I just spent 90 minutes with one of our great screen comedians giving it, giving us his all. And one of our great screen dramatists also giving it his all. Tell you, Al, if she wasn't receptive the other night, sister. Oh my God. I know she's in here, Popcorn. How'd you get over the fence? Chill. Come on. You want me to get you some need? Remember, or, uh, all I want to do is make you happy. Uh-huh. I want to see you. I want to know that you exist. That I'm not just imagining you. Out. She really isn't here. And, uh, <laughs> For real. One of our great comedy directors doing what he does, being good enough at directing to contain Adam Sandler <laughs> and Al Pacino. Uh, and the crew of dozens of Sandlerites. So you know what? I I had this at a hard three and a half last time I watched it. I'm going whole hog. This is a great movie. I'm saying this is uh, four bullets. Hell yeah. Nice. That's what's up, dude. I'm also going to go four bullets. I mean, I was just, I was, I was surprised how much I just laughed throughout this movie. I was, you know, genuinely, I was genuinely tickled. Damn. So to speak. So the Sandler reduced you to pure emotions. <laughs> pure emotion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I was actually touched at the end when uh, Jill found love. That's how you know this is a good movie. That's all I got to say. <laughs> One thing it. I wanted to note, uh, a film that I've talked about on this podcast before, uh, Poto and Cabango, the Jean-Pierre Gorin film, has a strong connection with this in the twin language that uh, Sandler creates, Jack and Jill create in this film. Uh, they call each other, you know, Poke and Pogogo. And it sounds distinctly like the invented language of the twins from Poto and Cabango, which obviously, like just hearing the ti- the title, the names <laughs> they give each other is just yeah, like this sure. film. 
so I like to think that Dennis Dugan was studying the work of Jean-Pierre Gorin after his uh, collapse <laughs> with Godard. He, he also respects the classics. Of course. And speaking of respecting oh, the Godondo. classics, uh, fucking Sandler storyboarding his uh, commercial while watching Scarface on his laptop. <laughs> Great. That, Just king shit. That, yeah. King shit. Uh, what? What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm going to give this uh, three and a half bullets. It's slowly rising in my ranks of Sandler as well. Um, I mean, talk, we talked all a little bit about our different uh, Sandler origins, and I think I haven't been shy on this podcast about being new to being uh, Sandler-pilled. And I, um, I don't know. It's like you could take the boring route of being like a soy core cucked guy, maybe make a podcast about watching Grown Ups 2 for like a fucking <laughs> year or some stupid fucking bullshit like that. Or you can wake up, be a man, and realize sometimes <laughs> you just want to fucking chill and like, I don't know, the shit is actually funny here. Like I watched this in like a group setting with my roommates, um, forced my girlfriend into watching this as well. Um, and yeah. good. <laughs> it, it was like, um, overall the response I got from people, they didn't like it as much as we all did, but they, they were like, Oh, that wasn't bad. That wasn't what yeah. I like. And I think if you can just open yourself up a little bit, just allow that to happen. I, I think, uh, it, it's pretty revolutionary. Also, I just wanted to touch on a specific note of just like, I mean, we've talked about how Pacino's performance is amazing and just the level of like sort of self-parody there. But there's a little detail that I love. It's when he's like um, driving uh, Jill um, back to his place and The Wanderer by Dion is yeah, playing yeah. in the car. It's such a fucking great needle drop. Don't be startled. It's only me. <laughs> Yeah, it's always the same thing in L.A. I, mean, I never know where I am. It's a wilderness here. I mean, in the Bronx, you got the streets, you got the numbers, you got 187. Yeah, oh, I like when he tickles Jill. Oh yeah, that's great too. Yeah, dude. When when wait when he tickles Jill, I I genuinely uh, I think that's how he probably is with dates. Just, like, <laughs> trying to seduce women, talking about acting. Like, there, there's a great Diane Keaton interview where she talks about, like, when she was going out with Al Pacino. And he was, like, the kind of guy who, you know, you go go back to his place and he'd read you Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's how into acting Al Pacino is. Yeah. A man after his own heart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what you said about people opening their hearts to this movie though it's like yeah people are all about you know like reclaiming films that have bad reviews and stuff in uh you know auteurism and seeing uh art, art in commercial objects but it's like if you're not willing to embrace jack and jill as an artistic piece of moving image then like you have a closed heart and are bad at watching movies. Yeah, and you and you're a snob. <laughs> oh yeah, that too. What about you, Rob? Wait. Um, well, I'm taking a piss, but um. <laughs> I heard well, that stream so, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, can you hear yeah, that? Dude. 
Not as healthy as I'd like it to be. It is theater. I was trying. I was trying to wait it out, but I couldn't. I couldn't hold it. Um, <laughs> well, so you guys know me. I don't rate. Like I only rate fives and hearts, and then no heart at all. Uh, but if I was gonna rate, I'd give it like a three and a half. Yeah, I, I I like it a lot. I think I think the gags are great. The performances are are very funny. The pacing is still so weird to me. Yeah. Like it, it it really does not feel like a complete movie. I mean, I kind of like that aspect of it, but I understand where that makes it like uh, not the smoothest flowing film. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, we don't have any emails this week other than Juan's voicemail. We don't have any emails this week, um, but you can email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of films that have a little baseball and a little romance. We're going to be talking about How Do You Know, the James L. Brooks film, and we're going to be talking about Mr. 3000. Uh, Bernie Max, one of his greatest performances uh, in a film by Charles Stone III. So that's going to be fun. Rob, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing this joyous experience of uh, Dude's Rock Cinema with us. Man, it was so fun. I'm glad we finally did it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Can people find you on Twitter, Letterboxd, all that stuff? Yeah, uh, at responsible Rob on Twitter. Uh, I forget my letterbox. Who gives a shit? None it's of it's probably matters. linked. Yeah, it's linked. It's fine. Yeah. Do, you know what? Don't follow me. Don't follow me because it, the internet is ruining my life. <laughs> <laughs> so please don't. I hate it. Don't yeah, watch me. You... Watch TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if you're one of our four listeners who doesn't follow Rob on Twitter, yeah. First of all, they all—they probably all are are friends. Yeah, yeah. So don't follow, unfollow me, block me, <laughs> <laughs> block Fuck Rob it. Franca. Yeah, yeah, block me. Uh, we're on Twitter at extendedclip69. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Devin CF. <laughs> and I'm a brat pit on letterbox. <laughs> Damn, dude, you're hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize I didn't realize you're fucking hot, dude. Is that a is are they hot? What? Yeah. I I've never I've never seen a picture. <laughs> dude, they're hot. I respect uh... JT. <laughs> oh, I met Tall Boy Thin Legs. Okay, cool. Uh, bye. <laughs> Something's brewing at D and D. Wow! Al Pacino. It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino. Don't mind if I do. That's my name, Dunkachino. It's a Dunkachino. Creamy goodness, I'm your friend. Say hello to my chocolate blend. Out of the cool, I like it like. This whole time is out of sight. They pull me back in with hazelnut too. Call 